Turn with me to Titus 2. And uh, this is going to be uh, uh, verses 1 through really 10, our, our, our one section. And um, I, I, we're not going to be able to cover all of that because this, I will tell you, this, this topic of what we're looking at today is really a, um, a hot button of mine, if you will, in the sense of trying to figure out how this happens in the context of a local church. Titus 2. Oftentimes it doesn't happen in the context of local church. And, and I think Satan has been very good and we've been very bad at preventing this from happening well in the context of a local church. And so I want to spend a couple of weeks on it and, and not just glance over it. Uh, last week we looked at, at false teachers and the, the effects that they were having on the church. And the, the, the bottom line truth about them was found in verse 16 of chapter 1. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless. They, they profess to know God, but their deeds said otherwise. There's a problem there. If we profess to know God and our lives don't back up that profession, there's a problem. And today, we will see the counterpart of those false teachers, and it's the lives of true believers. But, but we'll also, this week and next week, look at the why. We're, we're not here for morality. We're not here just saying, pull up your, your bootstraps and get her done. There's a why to this, but there's also, we saw last week, there's a power to this. There's the, the motivation, the power, the ability behind all that we do. And it's the glory of the gospel and the good of others. The glory of the gospel and the good of others. And it's the word of God we saw the last couple of weeks. It's the word of God that powers, that empowers the transformation. It's the word of God in us. And, and more, is, more is at stake with your life and with my life and how I live my life and how you live your life than just ourselves. More is at stake. The, the testimony of the gospel, the, the relationship that we have to the world in the proper context, the salvation of men and women, is all at stake in how we live our lives in that sense. I understand God is sovereign, but yet He uses us. And our lives are to be a, a, a witness, a testimony to the glory of the gospel, to the wonderful nature of the gospel. We have been saved to serve. We have not been saved to sit and spoil and, and just soak up the word of God and it ends with us. We've been saved to serve. We've been saved to go out and seek and save the lost. We've been saved to show the mercy and grace and all that we've received of the Lord. We've been saved to show that off and to give that to others. And in doing so, we bring glory to God. We look like Him. We take on the character and the characteristics of our Heavenly Father, our adopted Father. We've been saved to pass on the truths of the gospel. We've been, we've been saved to tell others, hey, this is, this is the way that your sin can be forgiven. And it's through Jesus Christ alone. We've been saved to do that. And, and the central truth, the central truth that I want us to see over the next couple weeks, you see there in your handout, it's this. The gospel not only commands, but the gospel empowers those in the church to live out God's design for godliness in every area of your life. It not only commands godliness in every area of your life, but the gospel empowers you to live that out in every area of your life, whether you're young or old. That's what we're going to see here, whether you're young or old. Godliness is not for after I get out of high school and college and sowed my, my wild oats. Godliness is not something that, hey, I'll get to studying the Word of God when I have kids and it matters. Godliness is not something that you say, hey, let me build my career and get all this stuff of the world and then I'll pursue godliness in my retirement. That's not, that's not the biblical model. Godless, godliness, God's design for our lives with respects to that, is for the young and for the old. And, and what we'll see today and what's missing in the churches is both the young and the old play a part in that. And I know no one likes to be called old, but let's be honest, some of you are old. And in a real sense, all of us are old. I'm older than Bradley. To Bradley, you ask Bradley how old I am, he's going to say you're about 60 years old. He's done it before. I'm like, brother, that's just the way they think. If they look at us, we're old. And, 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 and what we'll see today is all of us are older. All of us are older in some sense. 
and all of us are younger. And what we're going to talk about is the role of the older and the younger in the body of Christ. That's what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. And, and we will, again, we're only going to get through verse 3 today because there's a lot here. And we're going to answer questions over the next few weeks like this. What is the role of women in the church? What, what's, what's the role of men in the church? What, what's the role of young men, of young women of older men, of older women. What's their role? What's, what's, what about leaders? What about, what about slaves? And in our context, it would be employees. What, what's our role? What part do we play in the gospel? What, what does the gospel look like when, when it is impacting lives across the board? What does that look like? How, how will we be able to build a, a healthy church to the glory of God? How will we do that? We'll see all of that here. What, what does it look like to live differently in our culture? Because many things that, that Paul outlines here as far as characteristics were counterculture to what was going on in Crete. It was counterculture. And, and Paul is, is instructing Titus, and, and, and not only Titus but us, on what it looks like, what it means to live, especially in that context, as new believers, but in our context as believers in this world. What does it look like? What does it mean to be compelled to, to, to know sound and right doctrine and to take that doctrine out into the workplaces, into the parks and the playgrounds and the sports teams and the gym and your work and all that? What does that look like? Because it, it all starts, we'll see, with sound doctrine. We, we have to have lives. We have to have lives that back up our doctrine. We ought to have lives that back up sound doctrine. Our lifestyle outside of these walls ought to match what we learn about inside these walls. What we say and who we say we are here ought to be backed up out there. But, it, but it's all fueled by the gospel. It's all fueled by what God has done for us in putting Jesus Christ on a cross to die the death that you and I deserved. And then freely offering that gift that we would receive it by faith. That, that alone ought to fuel us. Paul says in Romans 12, we've seen it. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, brethren, to live lives that are set apart, holy, acceptable, pleasing to God. This is, he says, for this is your spiritual service or worship. How do we serve and worship God? By living a life that says we've received His mercy. By living a life that shows that we've received His mercy. We, we can't come here week in and week out and go, yeah, that's good, yeah, good, good, good truth, preacher, yeah, that's great, oh, I love that, you know, take it all in, and, and then walk out having only heard it, and not put it into practice, and not live it. We're not here for information, we're here for transformation. We're not here like a sponge where you just soak up all the water you can. We're here so we can soak up all we can, so we can go out there and God can squeeze us out and pour that water on other people. Our lives have to back it up in our homes, our workplaces, our, our relationships. Every aspect of our life ought to be a platform for the gospel. Ought to be a platform for telling the world about the greatness of Jesus Christ, that there truly is none like Him. Every, every component, our business, our play, our work, everything. And, and that's really our lives are to be, just like we said a while back, that marriage is a visible illustration of Christ and the, and the church. Our lives are to be visible illustrations of the glory of God as well, of the, of the gospel, of the change that God has made in us, that the Holy Spirit lives and resides in us, is producing godliness in us. And that's part of the whole point of Titus, that God has left us on earth. He has left you in the city that you live in, and to live a changed life, and in doing so, profess to the world, show to the world what an awesome Savior you have. That is why we are still here. That is why God did not save Chris Basham and then take him home. He saved Chris Basham, and then he empowers Chris Basham to tell others about the gospel. And it's the same for you, not just me as a pastor. Every single one of us, that's our role. That's why we're here, to make much of God, to proclaim the gospel, to be changed by the gospel in a hostile confrontational environment and one of the ways one of the ways that the world will know that the world will know that it that it needs to be redeemed is by you and me being a redeemed people living the life of a redeemed people 
That's how the world will know. It'll create that thirst, that hunger, that taste. We, we must live, we must be an example about what it means to be a redeemed people in your city, in your neighborhood. You be the example. I be the example. And we're, we're resident aliens. The culture is anti-God. The culture is anti-church. No different than it was in Crete. No different. And Paul says, hey, many people around you are, need to hear the gospel sometimes for the very first time, and they're going to do it through you. And they're going to see it first in how you live your life. They're going to see it first. And your life and your words have to back up. But hear me, your life by itself, nobody's that good. Nobody's that perfect to only say, well, they're going to know about Jesus through my life. Trust me, they won't. We have to back that up with a verbal profession. And what Paul is saying is our lives must back up that verbal profession. Romans 10, how will they know unless somebody speaks to them, tells them. Trust me, nobody's good enough to say, oh, they'll know about Jesus through only looking at my life. They're going to know about sin through looking at your life. They'll know how you fall short. They'll see some about Jesus, but they won't get saved just through your life. We need a verbal testimony. They may be intrigued, and hopefully they are. They may have their appetites whetted because of your life, but they need a verbal testimony to back that up. And, and what we must realize counter to the world and what the world throws at us lies, we need to dispute those lies with this fact. We are actually serving the world when we live transformed lives by the gospel. We are serving the world when we do that. We, we, when we live different from the world, we're actually serving the world. When we're different in a good way. One way that we serve the world is by being different. You see that on your hand. That's the handout. By being different. We're doing the world no good as Christians if we live exactly how the world lives. If we do everything, the world, we're, not doing any, we're not doing them a favor. As much as the world would want you to believe that, we are not doing them a favor. We're to be transformed. We're to be different. And, and those differences are seen in, in even attitudes toward generations. And that's where Titus is, Paul is writing to Titus and he's getting to today. One of the ways... That we're to be different is that in the church, the young and the old come together to help one another grow in the glory of the gospel. And that's what we'll see today. Young and old coming together to grow. And the why is the glory of Christ. We, we live in a culture that Satan, and again, if you've ever, Lee and I were talking about this last night, if you've ever read the screw tape letters, it is a phenomenally written book, and it helps you to get an idea of, of how Satan intentionally attacks that which God desires. God clearly desires a church that's intergenerational, where the older are pouring back into the younger, the younger are, are re-energizing the older. But guess what we see in our culture today? The younger hating the older, the younger wanting nothing to do with the older, the older wanting nothing to do with the younger. We got classes where all of the older people go over here and then all the younger people go over here and ne'er the two shall meet. Ne'er the two shall meet. And and we're robbing ourselves. We're robbing ourselves of blessings. And and we'll see that today in our text. God wants the body of Christ to be the young and the old serving alongside of one another, growing together. Growing together. We need the older And the older need the younger. I say we, I'm just, you see how I did that subtly, put myself in the younger category? We we need them. And and, and the goal is to pursue godliness, to have sound, right doctrine, to avoid the things of the world, to be transformed, to be teachers, to be proclaimers. But we do it for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, everything has to be about the gospel. So look with me in 2.1. Let me read verses. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 just so you get in the context, but we'll, we'll study verses 1 through 3 today. But as for you, he's talking to Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine and teaching what is good. So that, again, so that they may encourage. That word encourage literally means train 
the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. I don't know about you, but that always sounds odd when I read that. You can be trained to love your kids, doesn't that? Sometimes kids aren't lovable. Let's be honest. We would never say that publicly, but I'll say it for you. They're not lovable all the time. To be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. So listen, here's how important it is. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. You see how important this is? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Okay, that's the ladies. Look at the men. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. Dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame and have nothing bad to say about us. Do you see how important it is? The, the, Satan stands and accuses and the enemy accuses. They got nothing to accuse us of. All they can, they, they can't, they're shut up. That's how important this is. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Look, and so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Do you see how it always goes back to the gospel? Everything we do is a reflection on the gospel, on our doctrine, on, on, our, li- on our lives and the relationship. And, and so a couple points today. We're going to see a couple points today. The first one is this, the pursuit of godliness as an older man. The pursuit of godliness as an older man. That's where we're going to start, as an older man, verses 1 and 2. And verse 1 is the major theme throughout not only Titus, but all of the pastoral letters that Paul wrote. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all these pastoral letters. And, and it's this, a Christian's moral character should be consistent with sound doctrine. Our lives ought to back up what we say we believe about God. You can see that theme throughout all the letters. Your life, my life ought to back up what I say I believe. And, and again, notice where the burden of this begins with men. The burden begins with men. Mom, I mean dads, starts with you. you you're, the, you're the thermostat for your home. Your wife oftentimes is, is like a thermometer. She basically is telling other people what the thermostat is set at, but you're the thermostat. You're the spiritual thermostat, dad. It starts with you in our homes. Everything else that we're going to see here is rooted in verse 1. And what does he say? Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. There is a need in all of our homes, men, for us to be sound, grounded, knowledgeable theologians. Now, I know you hate that word, but we, we need to know this word. And we need to be seeking out this word. It's not for our wives to do on Tuesday mornings or Thursday nights. It's our job, men. We set the the temperature. We saw in 1 Corinthians, wives, who does it say? Wives ought to be able to go to their husbands first to ask questions about the Bible. That's our job. Sound doctrine begins at home and it begins with the man. He says, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Literally there he's saying, teach them. And God should be glorified not only with our words, but with our lives through our works. It's not only, oh, I love the Lord, but does your life back that up? God ought to be glorified not only with our words, but with our lives. And this is true for every single believer. Not just me, not just Titus, not just a few elite church leaders. Every single believer. Not just those who are older, but that training is passed down to the younger. And I'm, I'm eternally thankful here. I look out and I see a multi-generational church and I'm eternally grateful. When Karen and I, when they asked us to, to get involved here and to commit to doing this, uh, there were lots of ways we could have do it. And, and, and Karen and I just said, you know what? We're just going to pray and ask God to work on people's hearts and whoever comes, comes. Because guess what? If I would have just gone to my Bible fellowship class, it would have been a lot of people that looked like me. It wouldn't have been multi-generational. It wouldn't have had the young and the quote-unquote old, forgive me for saying that. But, but that. And that's not what the body of Christ looks like, all ages. We need younger and we need older. We, we live in a society that, that not only has suffered um, the, uh, the illnesses of, of gender confusion, 
What it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, doesn't even matter. But we've also suffered from appreciating, respecting the older generation. We live in a world that's just like, hey, get them out of here and let's get on with the, with the new thinkers. Thanks for serving, but, but step aside. That is unbiblical. We need to understand biblically what it means to be young, what it means to be old, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. And Paul deals with all of that here in Titus. And what he is encouraging Titus and us is this. We can't allow the church to be shaped by culture more than by Scripture. Our attitudes about the young, our attitudes about the old, our attitudes about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be born, all that have to be shaped by the Scriptures, not by culture. And, and one of these is that you who are older, he says, are to teach the younger how to live for the gospel. How to have godly living that is consistent with sound doctrine. We need older, mature men pouring their lives into younger men so that they'll be able to lead their families. The church is desperate for that. And, and we have, they need to hear from you what, how, that you who have been there done that, you, you've made some mistakes, not encourage them to make the same mistakes, not play down those mistakes, not say, hey, make the mistakes and, you know, I made it out all right. That's not the point. The point is to say, avoid the mistakes because if you're like me, my mind can go back and think things I've done and I wished I knew better. Satan brings up that little reel in my head and accuses me of this and accuses me of that. We need this in the church. We need men telling younger men, hey, don't waste your life chasing material things. Don't waste your life chasing this and miss your kids growing up. Don't, don't waste your life chasing this and miss vacations. Don't waste your life chasing all this and miss loving your wife as Christ of the church. We need that. We need men who have said, hey, I've been there, done that, and I messed up. Don't do it. It's not worth it. There's a price to be paid. We, we see this even, again, God is good and shows mercy in our mistakes, but that does not give us the license to make mistakes freely. Romans 6, what shall we say then? If God is glorified, if His grace is made much of through my sin, should we sin evermore? And Paul says, by no means. We need, we need, to, we need help avoiding, avoiding these things. So, so on one hand, there's a mistake there in, in not being willing to be vulnerable, but, but glossing over mistakes. But the other is this. We, when we see this older Older men, we tend to, in our minds, come up with a number, and we're quick not to put ourselves in that category. Especially if you're, you know, I'm 30, what am I? 38. I had to think about it there for a second. Oh, I'm not the younger, I'm not the older, I'm certainly not the older. Don't be so quick to do that. In a very real sense, in this culture, it would have been men, you know, 50s and, and, and up. But, but guess what? But on a very practical level, every single one of us is older. Every single one of us. And my point is this, all of us as believers ought to be finding people to pour our lives into. Every single one of us ought to be looking for other people to pour our lives into. That's, that's the point of the church. All believers ought to reflect these characteristics and be able to pour their life into somebody else. And we're going to see seven characteristics here of a godly older man. And hear me, when you read this list, if you're like me, you're going to think, I have failed miserably at all these levels at many, many times. That's not the point. The point is not have you failed. The point is, do these characteristics ought to generally mark your life? You don't have to be perfect, but generally these characteristics ought to mark your life. So that you can teach younger men, so that you can pour your life into younger men. The demand is not for perfection. The demand is for the general trend of our lives to be moving in these directions, for these characteristics to generally, habitually, like if, if I asked you, hey, tell me about David, you, you would say, oh yeah, he's a sensible guy. Does that mean he always makes sense? Does that mean he, every decision he's ever made has been perfect? It does not. Ask Agnes. But, but generally speaking, He's sensible. That makes sense. So don't, don't beat yourself up, but at the same time, don't be too easy to think, oh, it doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. Absolutely matters. 
Our lives as men ought to look like this, what we're about to see. Ought to look like this. And the goal is the glory of the gospel and to pour our lives into other men so that we can pour our lives into other men. And the first thing he says, look at verse 1. First thing is to teach. Teach. He says, speak the things. That word speak, it, some, some of your translations may say teach. It, it literally is practical instruction based upon doctrine. It is, a cla- it, is, it is not a classroom type of teaching. It is a relational type of teaching. It's a fellowship three, like what we do fellowship three, it's that kind of teaching. It's taking someone to lunch. It's building a relation. It's not you sit and still while I instill. It's a relational type of teaching. It's a relationship between older men and younger men. Literally what he's saying there is live life together. It is living life together and instructing on the younger generation on how to live out the gospel. It's living life together. You're, you're sowing the gospel into the next generation. You're sowing godliness into the next generation. You're, expecting the, you're, you're instructing them to be examples, to understand what godliness and what it looks like in all practical levels as an employee as a husband, as a father, as a friend. And, and notice this would stand in stark contrast to what we saw last week with regards to the false teachers. Again, Christians are to be different. They're to be set apart. The, the, use he, the word here for speak is in the Greek. It literally never stops. The tense in the Greek, it is ongoing. It never stops. You don't never, well, I've, I've discipled five people. I'm done. I can go retire and live in, you know, no, it's non-going. It's ongoing. Never stops. Look, look at 2.15. Look down at the end of this chapter where we'll get. These things speak and exhort and approve with all authority. Let no one res- disregard you. It, it's ongoing. And your primary role, men, our primary role and responsibility is to be a teacher. Primary role, primary responsibility is to teach. Dads, if you have children... Guess who the, 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 the primary responsibility for discipling your child is? It's not Michael and Heather. It's not your small group leader. It's you, Dad. Primary responsibility for discipling your home falls on me and you, Dad. If you feel ill-equipped, all the more reason to go find an older man who has been there, done that, and get equipped. It doesn't take a whole lot to, to know more than your 8-year-old. Okay? Spiritually, you can teach. You can, I, can, I can spend some time with you, and I can, I can help you look like a genius to your four-year-old. Notice I said four-year-old. The age is dropping. You, you, it's our, that's our role. Guys, our children, they need a teacher more than they need a pal. They don't need a friend. They need a dad who is committed to God's Word and is willing to disciple them. They don't need you to be their best friend. I tell you what, if you disciple them and you train them up in godliness, you'll end up being their friend. But you can be their friend and never teach them the Word of God. They need us to teach, too, not preach. They need a relational. They need to know I can come to Dad no matter what mistakes I've made, no matter how I've failed, and, and he'll continue to walk with me. That kind of relationship. They need a teacher, not a preacher. They need a, they need a dad. They need a spiritual mentor, not a pal. And we need it in the lives of older men. Some, some older men didn't have, some of us dads, I, I had a good one, but some dads here did not have a good model to follow. They're literally first generational Christians. They need somebody to pour into them, to teach them what it means to be a dad. That's the older men's responsibility. We must be taught what it looks like to be true to the gospel in both word and behavior. And the responsibility falls on us, men. Primarily and first. Falls on us. Not only that, he says, be, be temperate. Older men are to be temperate. That word here means wise in decision making. It means level-headed. Th- this person is very careful in making judgments. He, he understands what really matters. He understands what doesn't really matter. He, and he gives his life over to the furtherance of God's agenda more than the world's agenda. That's what it means by temperate. 
All that matters in everything is, I'm going to please God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Temperate. What he's saying here is, men, nothing, nothing should dominate our lives outside of the gospel. Outside of making much of Christ. There should be no greater desire in our lives to see our children and other men doing the same thing. And we ought to be seeking out people that we can pour our life into. Scary? Absolutely it's scary. I can guarantee you, the first time I taught, I, I hopefully I got better from then until now. The first time I led a small, John Cordova and I, and now some other men are meeting. We've been meeting for what, five years? Six years? Every Thursday? The first time we got together in Romans 1, that was probably a mess. John's probably never thought he'd be there six years. But six years later, and about four books later... We're learning. But it was a risk. He took the risk and walked up to me one day. I still remember it at the rec fields and said, Hey, would you disciple me? Would you spend some time with me? Six years later, every Thursday. I didn't know Romans. I only needed to know about five more verses than he knew. But I know Romans now because I discipled. And that's the thing. As we disciple others, God disciples us. As I seek to teach others... Guess what God's doing to me? He's teaching me. And we need, to be, we, need to be temp, we need to be teachers. We need to be temperate. Nothing dominates us outside the gospel. We need to be dignified. This is a man who's worthy of respect. It ought to be obvious. When I look around this room, I can, I can honestly tell you, I'm not calling on names. There are, there are men that my mind immediately goes to, worthy of respect, worthy of respect, worthy of respect, worthy of respect. Find one of those men. Ask him. And if someone comes up and you asks you, make the, make the sacrifice to make it happen. The, the word respect there, it's somebody who pursues that which is noble, that which pursues what, that which is worthy respect. It, this is a man who's not laughing at the things he used to laugh at when he was 18 and 19 years old. He's not playing silly games like he did when he was a youngster. This is a man who understands that time is short, that, that, that there's a seriousness about his life. There's a dignity about his life. There's, a, there's an honor and respect about his life. We, that we ought to have that in our lives. The, the Greek word literally means not a man who is frivolous. Not a man who is frivolous. They're not silly. They're not silly. I know a lot of men that do not act their age. My wife would probably put me in that category sometimes. This is a man who acts his age, who's grown. Not, not only dignified, but sensible, it says in verse 2. Sensible. This is the key, the key characteristic that pervades this whole section, is this word sensible. It appears, you don't see it in the English, but in the Greek, a form of this word appears in all of the key groups. All of the descriptions, there is a form of this word right here that pervades the whole text. And literally it points to self-control. Self-control. This is a person who has their appetites for all things under control. Under control. This is a person who has their passions, who has their appetites, who, who, who has their pursuits. All of that under control. They're not, they're not governed by their whims. They're governed by the word of God. They're governed by the Holy Spirit that lives into them. John MacArthur describes the person as this way, having discernment, discretion, and judgment that comes from walking with God for many years. This is a person whose life reflects a long walk with God. A long walk with God. Their life reflects it. Sanctification shows its effects in his life. Sanctification ought to show the, the, that sanctification, that's a big word, that's the pursuit of God, the pursuit of godliness. It ought to show its effects in our lives. Over time, we look more and more like him, less and less like the person we used to be. Lastly, he says, sound in faith, love, and pers excuse me, perseverance. What this teaches us is that there's a faithfulness about his life over the long haul. Generally speaking, over the long haul, this is a man who's been faithful. Faithful. Not perfect, but faithful. He, he's a, what, what we would say is this is a healthy believer. He's healthy. He trusts the Lord. He has a daily walk with the Lord and it shows. 
This is a person that knows what he believes and he know why he knows why he believes it. He knows what he believes and why. He can first Peter three fifteen. He can give a defense for the hope that he has. It shows itself. He says faith and love and perseverance. It shows itself in how he loves others. This is a man who who's a servant. He gives himself up for others. It shows himself in being patient with others. This is a man whose life is rooted in the gospel. He knows that God has loved him when he didn't deserve it. He knows that God has been patient with him when he was struggling. And he received that from God and therefore he gives that to others. He is giving to others that which he has received from the Lord. And he's teaching others how to do the same. And the end goal, the end goal is that that we would all become what we've described here. Or that we would be moving in that direction. That's why discipleship has to happen. That's why men have to be taking other men under their wing and helping them move toward Christ-likeness. Just like a little baby has to have a mother provide milk and put that milk to his mouth or her mouth and feed him, Christians need someone to disciple them, to grow them up to maturity, that they would be sound in the faith. And the gospel is worthy of our total commitment. And others need to be totally committed. And it's going to happen through men grabbing other men and discipling them. And that is missing in the church. And we're feeling the effects. It's never, listen to me, it's never too early. It's never too late to pursue godliness. Don't think that that's something you wait until the the later years to do. Trust me, you won't do it. It's never too early Never too late to pursue godliness. That is the why. That is the why for all of this. Not only our life, but others' lives. For the good of others, for the good of us. And we saw that in verse 4, in verse 8, in verse 10. Men, who are you pouring into? If you think, well, I'm not worthy, then who are you asking to pour into you and get worthy? See, there's no way around it. You're either pouring into somebody or you're being poured into so that you can pour into somebody else. There's no no missing it here. You're either pouring into somebody or you're being poured into so that with the goal, hey, I'm going to pour into somebody. All right? Next, not only men, but now he goes into women. You're not off the hook here, women. Verse 3, the pursuit of godliness as an older woman. What does that look like? We've seen what it looks like for a man. He says, older women. Likewise, that word likewise means literally in the same way. For the same reasons, the same goals, the same purposes that men would do it to younger men. Women, you do it to younger women. You are charged with the same design, the same intent as men. But you're to be pouring into other women. Everything. You're to teach them to live godly. You're to teach them what it looks like to, to love a husband who come home late, leaves early, who overworks, who does all these things that we men sometimes do. We need to learn, how do I love that guy? How do I love kids that don't want to behave? How do I love kids that, that just want to disbehave? Unbe- disbehave? Is that a word? That just want to be disobedient. Misbehave, that's it. Disobedient, whatever. I'll make up some words. Irregardless, irregardless, it doesn't matter. You know, how do we love those things? I mean, yesterday, I, I, yesterday was one of those days with my son where I'm thinking, I, are you hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth? Or am I like speaking a foreign language? I, I said, Bradley, it's time. We got to go. The babysitter's coming. There was a bunch of kids at our house. I said, Bradley, all of them need to go to their own home, and you need to chill out for a few minutes. So I go to, to take a shower to clean up. He must have came and asked me 15 times, can Anunt come back in? Bradley, they need to go to their own home. Well, can I go to their home? They need to go to their own home. You need to stay here. Can we play in the garage? I, literally 15 questions. I get out of the shower. He's still asking me. I co- get out of the shower. There are eight kids in my garage playing cops and robbers. I'm like, what part of to their own home was not clear? This is not their home. If I can claim them on my taxes, that's one thing. I don't get to. Go home. You've ate all my food. You've played in the pool. You've done all that. Go home. It, it, I, 
Lord, teach me to love him. Teach me to love him. Be patient. And, and again, same with the men. Not every woman in here had a godly mom. We're dealing with some first-generation first believers. Not everyone here had a great model of how to respect a husband. How to, how to respect a husband even when they're not worthy of that respect. And, and we need some ladies who are willing to pour in to some other ladies to teach them how to do that. And, and older women, you're called to be an example worth following, a visible illustration and again, everyone is older in some sense. College girls, they can pour in. They, they remember what it was like to be a high schooler and all the battle with that. Help those girls. You know, you don't need to tell them all the mistakes you made if you made mistakes. You need to help them avoid those mistakes. High school girls, you can help those middle school girls. A, a, a business woman, I mean a woman who has a mature family, help that young mom who hasn't slept in four days and hasn't taken a shower in four days because their kid's not asleep. And help that young mom know that better days are coming. Help, help that young mom understand what it means to respect a husband even when, he, when it's hard. The church needs that. You've been there, done that. There are tremendous opportunities here. Endless opportunities. And the core of what is needed in order for this to happen, it is a personal, growing walk with the Lord, ladies. That's the requirement to pour into somebody else, is a personal, daily walk with the Lord. And pouring yourself into somebody else. And what makes all this possible is that your life has been transformed, sanctified, made to look more like Christ, and there you pour into somebody else. And Paul gives us a job description here, just like the men. He gives us the job description. And everything connects to what we saw with men. It's so that you will teach and train others. Both are, are, are equally important. Men doing it to men, women doing that, teaching women. And he says the first thing for a woman is reverent. That word literally means temple fitting. They, they are, it is behavior that is appropriate with the temple. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that you've been bought with a price? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a woman who lives that way. That she understands her body is a temple and she lives that out. And, and, and what he's saying is older women ought to live in a way that's fitting for the gospel. A fitting way. They live in a way that's fitting for Christians. It's a life and behavior that's marked by holiness, by reverence. It's a life that's, uh, that's worthy of being copied. It gives evidence uh, uh, outwardly to others. She has a walk with Christ and it shows in her life. She can help others follow her. So not only reverent, but truthful. You can look at, uh, at Proverbs 31. These characteristics are all over Proverbs 31. Godly women are known for speaking the truth. Literally what he says is you have control over your tongue. Control over your tongue. You look all throughout Scripture, not being a malicious gossip is consistently tied to godly womanhood. Their speech builds up rather than tears down. This is a woman who shuts gossip up rather than passing it on. Truthful. She's sober-minded. You need to understand, in, that, in the culture that Paul wrote to, public drunkenness, and, and that was seen as a, um, a, uh, uh, it was a cultural thing that it was a virtuous. That's the word I'm looking for. It was virtuous. Public drunkenness. To go to parties, to just lose control, they, they saw that as, as virtuous. Notice the contrast of verse 12 in chapter 1. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's what they were known for. Liars, drunkenness, evilness. He's saying, Christians, be different. Be different. Women, don't look like your culture. Don't dress like your culture. Don't talk like your culture. Don't act like your culture. We don't take our cues from what they sell on the newsstand. We take our cues from the Word of God. We don't need the world telling us what beauty looks like and all this stuff. God's Word has told you what beauty looks like. By faith, rely on it and live it out so that other women can do the same. There, there's, I can't imagine what, it, what, it, what it, the pressure must be on our wives. I mean, I've gone to the grocery store. There are, it's, I just want to look focused just on the cashier. Get me through this line as quick as possible. Because there's all these things telling our wives, you got to look like this, you got to do this. Word of God is very clear. Go to 1 Peter 3, very clear on what beauty looks like. 
God has not left that void. And godly women says, hey, I'm sober-minded. I'm going to pursue the word rather than culture. I'm going to live according to the word rather than according to culture. And bottom line, sober-minded, a godly woman is in control of her appetites for things, whether that's food or drink or the tongue or behavior or material things. This is a woman who's in control, who has a grip on these things. Next, he says, a teacher. Like the older women, like the older men, older women are, ought to be able to teach what is good. And what is good, we'll see it next week, is explained in verses 4 and 5. And, and this was a unique word, what Paul uses here. And it's the same thing. It's not a classroom thing. It's informally in your home. It's coming alongside another mom and living life with her. Again, it would be first Sunday supper, taking the time to go sit with some people you don't know, a younger woman, and, and building a relationship with her. Fellowship three, taking some ladies to lunch, having them in your home for dinner. Those are the, th- the places where this happens. Every issue of life would be discussed. Teaching. Teaching. It's literally mentoring at its finest. And the emphasis here is on the character of the teacher and the content. It starts with the character and sound doctrine, and then the content is they share with others what has been shared with them. Do you see the cycle? You just keep passing it on and on and on, and future generations, they learn. It is passing on a godly legacy. That's literally what is at stake here. Passing on a godly legacy to future generations. Generational impact is here. A a godly home in many regards, will revolve around a godly mother. You can look at Timothy himself in in his letters. Uh, He had a grandmother and a mother, Lois and Eunice. They poured themselves into Timothy. Mom, pour yourself into your kids. Dad, you set the tone, and Mom, oftentimes you're going to carry it out in a lot of ways. If you're like me, my wife spends a whole lot more time with our kids than I do. But she's backing up and she's furthering what we want taught to them. And you see, look at verse 4. This is the why. This is the why. So that they may train, that word is train, encourage the young women. That's the why, to train others. Why are you pursuing godliness? So you can train others. Why are you pursuing godliness? Because it brings glory to God and I want to train others. It's, we're not a dead end. It's not an end to itself. It's so that I can train others. And the consequences as, of this not happening are huge. Without embarrassing her, we went, I want to, Miss Carolyn Wright, we went to pass out bread this past Easter. And we went into her neighborhood and we, we kind of, her home was our home base. There are two young middle school aged girls who every day she pours her life into. They don't have a godly home. They don't have a mom and a dad who are... Their mom and dad, from what I understand, won't even allow them to come here. Those little girls leave their home every day and they go running to Carolyn's house. And she teaches them the Bible every day. She teaches them what it means to be a godly young girl every day. She could be doing a lot of stuff with her time. You know what she's doing? She's pouring her life into others. That's that's what we're talking about here. And on behalf of the Lord, I I, I say thank you, Miss Carolyn. Thank you for doing that. We, we have other ladies, and again, this goes on, I'm just speaking quickly. Barbara A. And, and Barbara M. pouring their lives into ladies in their home on Tuesday nights. Pouring their life into them. Doing Titus 2 material. Some of you ladies are, are the recipients of that. I, I, I say thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. It's huge. You're literally teaching women what it means to be godly women. And when we do this, everyone grows, the younger and the older. I will bet you Miss Carolyn Wright would say she has learned a lot from doing this with these girls. I bet you Barbara A. and Barbara M. would say, we've learned a lot ourselves from doing this. That's the secret. We all grow. When we're pouring our lives into other people, we all grow, the younger and the older. And, and it's interesting as we close I find it interesting that Satan has sought to turn the younger and the older against each other in churches. Because that's exactly where God wants us to be turning to each other. 
And Satan has managed to try to get us to turn away from each other. We fight over worship styles and clothing and the way things used to be and this and that. And, and Satan is winning that battle in that sense. God wants us to be unified, the older and the younger. And in many times, in many churches, that's just not the case. There's no relationships. Satan will always seek to counterfeit and disrupt that which God cherishes and desires. Hear me. If God commands it and tells us to pursue it, trust me, that's where you will find Satan launching out his attacks. Right where God wants us to be. The young and the old and our relationships with one another, no different. Anything that is important to God, important to the health and growth and unity of a church, please know Satan will attack it. He'll attack it. And having the older, getting with the younger and, and unified and loving and teaching each other, that will not please Satan, but it will please our Heavenly Father. And it will grow this church. We will grow into maturity. And older ones here today, if you're here and, and you would be older, I say on behalf of the Lord, serve the younger. Find somebody to pour yourself into. Even if we don't receive it well, keep trying. Keep trying. Keep trying. Keep seeking us. Keep trying to teach us. Not preaching to us, but relationally teaching us. Don't give up, even if we, even if we stiff arm and even if we keep after it. And the younger ones, I say on behalf of the Lord, be humble enough to be taught by somebody older. If someone comes to you, be humble enough to receive it. Be humble enough to even go to one of them. We have some phenomenal godly men here. Find one. If you can't think of one, call me. I'll point you to one. There is much to offer with experience and wisdom and all that. Talk to them. Engage them. Get under somebody and be taught, men, women, and be teaching somebody. God desires an intergenerational church that is growing together, and that's what I desire this church to be. There, there's some application there's some application down here on your page. I just real quick, I'm not going to read through all that. You can for the sake of time. I'm, I'm going over my limit already. But 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Paul writes this. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win the more. He says, hey, I can be doing whatever I want. You know what I, you know what I am doing? I made myself a slave to everybody to win the more. To the Jew I became a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law is under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law is without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. That's the whole goal of why we do what we do, that by God's grace we would save some. By God's grace, we would save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker in it. That's the why. Because we will become, gain an intimacy with Christ, a fellowship with Christ, and be a fellow, fellow partaker of the gospel if we live for the gospel.